So anyway, so to thank you for doing that, and thank you for uh, being here, and thank you for a great worship and uh, great spirit here. So today, we're going to continue in our study on Second Peter, and um, we're going to continue to talk about relentless deception. Relentless deception. Yes, thank you. If you would pass those out, please. Darren, I appreciate that. And it uh, gives you something to write notes on. And we have, we're going to have a, a, quite a few scriptures today, so I appreciate you either opening your Bible or following along and making notes. You can go back later and study it for yourself. That's, that's great. But today, as we talk about uncovering the false teachings and the false preaching uh, that was active in the early church, um, it's hard to miss the obvious fact that we're living in an age of untruth here as well. I mean, it's, it's kind of all around us here. There, there was a time in my life that I can remember that it seemed that most people were honest. There was a time when I could trust most people, including leadership at all levels. Um, but it just doesn't seem to be that way anymore, does it? It just doesn't seem to be a trustworthy time. In fact, I would say it's even hard to find truth at all in some circles. There's so much out there that's untruth, I just it's hard to discern what is really truth. So that's why I titled the message Relentless Deception, because I find the fact that the enemy is relentless in his way, in his effort, in his strategy, in his tactics of deceiving people in all walks of life, in and out of the church. And that's why I think this study in Second Peter is so timely, because as we talk about deception, as we talk about truth, it only, it's the only way that we really can help guard ourselves. Um, let me give you an example of what I mean. If I was to ask anyone of my age or older, I'm 61, I'll be 62 on the 23rd of December, so I'm... I'm Okay, 62 now. That's close enough. If you, were, if you want to get technical about it, Greg. I'm 62. Um, and truth, that's truth. If, if I was to ask you, who is the most trusted man in America? Who would you say? And you go back into the years that you can remember, and who used to be known as the most trusted man in America? Abraham Lincoln, maybe in our lifetime. <laughs> in our lifetime. You've, you saw him on TV. Who's that? Walter Cronkite. The most trusted man in America. A newsman. It wasn't that long ago, and Walter Cronkite was heralded the most trusted man in America. And you know, there was a time when I think we could actually believe what the newsman said. The anchor, would, what he would report, he was actually doing his job and reporting the news. Not putting his opinion on it, not putting a spin on it, but actually reporting the news. In fact, I've got a little video I want to show you that just talks about the demise of truth in America today. Larry, would you run that for us, please? I made a mistake in recalling the events of 12 years ago. It Just a few hours after NBC suspended Brian Williams, Jon Stewart announced he would not return to The Daily Show next season. 
Williams, who took over as anchor of NBC's Nightly News in 2004, is now left in disgrace. Stewart, on the other hand, who started out as an obscure comedian, has risen to prominence as a trusted newsman. But first, obviously, the big news of the past few weeks, the town of Ferguson, Missouri. Once upon a time, news anchors were king. Walter Cronkite, CBS anchor from 1962 to 1981, and protege of the legendary Edward Murrow, was thought by some to be the most trusted man in America. After a scathing broadcast from Vietnam, President Lyndon Johnson is reported to have said, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost middle America. Cronkite retired in 1981 and was succeeded by Dan Rather. The following year, Tom Brokaw took over as anchor at NBC, and the year after that, Peter Jennings at ABC. For the next two decades, these three men dominated the news report. The country turned to them in moments of tragedy and triumph. From the west side of the Berlin Wall at the Brandenburg Gate, I'm Tom Brokaw. But even as the position of anchorman stayed the same, the media landscape was changing fast. Cable television was rapidly expanding, and nightly broadcasts were being overtaken by the 24-hour news cycle, undermining the dominance of the network anchors. In a six-month period starting in December 2004, Tom Brokaw retired, Dan Rather was forced out in disgrace over a controversial investigation, and Peter Jennings died of cancer. It was the end of an era. It is now our job from this day forward to endeavor each evening to put the finest work of this organization on the air. Brian Williams succeeded Brokaw at NBC, where the nightly news remained popular, but the landscape had shifted even further. By that point, there was an unlikely challenger at Comedy Central. Stand-up comedian John Stewart hosted The Daily Show. The Daily Show borrowed its structure from the nightly news, but drew younger viewers by mixing opinion and satire with Stewart's brand of hard-hitting interviews. It also introduced a paradox. Many viewers regard Stewart personally and satirical news more broadly as more authentic and more trustworthy than traditional broadcasts. Brian Williams's future is uncertain, but the dominance of the nightly news, in particular, the preeminence of the anchor as the most trusted person in America, might well be a thing of the past. Now this was made in 2016. Um, if it was made today, um, it would maybe be a bit a little more updated. But the, but the fact that I want to bring out on this is that the truth in America today is so far away from what it used to be. It's just not even the same. And so it's, it's continued evidence for us as to why we need to study this and why we need to understand um, that how obvious it is that we need to dig deep into what's being said. We need to dig deep into what the media is saying and uh, find out that um, the truth really does make a difference for us. And I think it's important as we study here that we, as we know how much truth has been diminished in all areas in our life. I mean, you could look at it and, and see the confusion in every area of public service. I mean, we don't even know who our, our president is yet. One is claiming one, one is claiming another. There's still lots of work to be done to have a fair election. We want a fair election. That's all we ask for is fairness in our election, that it's not, it's not stolen or it's not twisted. We just want fairness, and then we'll take the results of whatever that is. We'll take it once it's known to be fair. We don't know what the best way really is to fight COVID. We, we really don't know if masks work or don't work. I mean, there is a theory about that. There's some science behind that. Um, we don't know if there are therapeutics out there that we should be treating people with COVID rather than sending home and waiting to get really sick. Maybe there's, maybe there's therapeutics. I think there are, but we don't talk about them. 
Are the vaccines going to be the answer? Do we take a vaccine or do we not take the vaccine? I mean, can I trust what's being said about these things? I, I think that, you know, as I, as I was preparing for this message this week, I was just kind of bombarded with all of the things in life that we just don't know the answers to anymore. We're in such a, a spin-crazy world that I listen to someone that should be an expert, but is he really, and am I here, is he telling the truth? I, I did some random research, and I, I found an, an article. You can find anything on the Internet, but I found this publication called Dawn. They have an article that says, Lying, it's titled, Lying is the New Normal in the Post-Truth World. And I, let me just read some of, the, some of the excerpts of that. It said that there is a time, this is the time that we're living in now. This is the time when being a successful politician means being dishonest where nastiness is rewarded with votes and where fear and hate have replaced the discourse of tolerance and hope. It also says that transformation has been rapid. The new normal has come upon us as almost unnoticed, changing our politics and with it our world in the blink of a Twitter feed. It also says it really has happened fast. Only a few years ago, calling a politician a liar was the ultimate insult. When just like thieves, lying politicians were outcast by society, becoming objects of contempt and disdain. They were unceremoniously booted out. Their lives exposed their careers in tatters. That was then. Today, more than halfway into 2016, it's officially true. Vows, facts, and manners are out. Lies, dishonesty, rudeness, and fiction are in. It just seems that way, doesn't it? I mean, there was a time when truth rang true, and it was the king, and if you were caught in a lie, it was embarrassing. <laughs> Today, it's almost expected that in some walks and circles of life, you're expected to lie, and we look at it as normal. You know, I was uh, continuing to search, and I found on, in a survey that was done by Christianity Today, on January 5th, 2018, titled, The Eight People Americans Trust More Than Their Local Pastor. Where do you think the pastor should rank in the category of truthfulness? All right, here's a report. I don't know if you can see that or not. But it says that pastors rank eighth among those that are can be considered truthful. And this particular study has, um, it has Christians, and non-Christians. And so nurses are ranked the highest, military officers, grade school teachers, medical doctors, pharmacists, police officers. Again, this was done in 2018. <laughs> 2020 may not be so here. But pastors were down, clergy was down at 8th, and 40 or 25% of non-Christians, 25% of non-Christians trusted clergy. And here's the most important, the thing that got me the most, 48% of Christians trusted pastors. So that means 52% of Christians don't even believe what your pastor's saying. What's the point? Do we see how relentless deception is now, even in the church? That it is becoming to the point that we don't even trust and believe our pastors anymore. So if you can't believe a pastor, then who can you believe? I mean, shame on the pastor that would lead into intentional untruth. And I know we've had scandals. I know there's been scandals in 
all forms of religion from the Protestant into the Catholic world. There's been scandals and things. But it's a shame that unfortunately we've stooped that low. Our society and even Christians have stooped so low that we don't even believe our own clergy. That's a shame. Who do you think gets glory for that? The enemy. The enemy's all about this, isn't he? So for the fact that pastors aren't leading the list of trusted people, it just shows us that we are living in an area, in an, in an age of relentless deception. And here's the thing. The enemy doesn't really care how he wins the battle. He doesn't care if you trust your pastor or don't trust your pastor. He doesn't care. All he wants to do is destroy. All the enemy wants to do is destroy us, and he'll do this any way he can. He'll either do this by um, getting, to, getting less and less people to trust their pastor, as this study showed, so that he can destroy the church from the outside, or he'll do it by having more and more false teaching come in the church so that the church will be destroyed from the inside. He doesn't care how he wins. He just wants to win, and he'll destroy it from outside or inside. The enemy is relentless in his cover-ups, in his deception, in the lies, in the myths, in every way that he can creatively think up ways to destroy the truth of God's word and destroy us. He's had thousands of years. Think about this. The enemy has had thousands of years to practice on human beings. He knows us. He knows our weak points. He knows the areas that we struggle in, and he knows the things that he can get us in. And his number one tool, his number one tool is not a straight-out attack. It is through deception and lies. That's the, where, that's the place that he wins the most. And so it's important that we study, the, study his tactics, that we study his strategies, and that's what Peter's doing And when he's writing the second letter into the churches of his time so that he's warning them and encouraging them to, to hang in here. So today, as we, as we study this text, we're going to go through a journey. I want to go through more than just Second Peter here to point out the fact that deception is coming. All through the New Testament, from Peter to Paul to Jesus himself, he talked, they prophesy, they prophesy that deception is on the way. Second Peter, our text for today is, in our text in Second Peter, chapter 2, it says, but there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who, brought, who bought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. Verse 2 is the key point. Many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality, and because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. And, you know, you can read over this passage pretty quickly here, but the key, ver- the key verse is verse 2, and the, the key word is many. Many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality. And because of the word many, I felt we needed to stay here for a few minutes, and we need to study this a little bit more. If he would have wor- used the word only a few will be deceived, then maybe we don't need to spend so much time on this. But when... Peter uses the descriptor many, that gives us a point of warning because the many can also be considered the most. And if most people are deceived, where does that put us? And Peter's not the only New Testament writer that talked about this. The Bible, as we know, is over 30% prophetic. 
30% it speaks in the future tense of what's going to happen prophetically. And so if we look at, the, if we look at Paul and Paul's writings to Timothy and even Jesus' writings, we're going we're gonna to uncover today that prophetically they were speaking 2,000 years ago, but they're speaking about our, our time today. Open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 2, Paul says this to his spiritual son, Timothy. He says, preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming, here's the prophetic, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itchy ears want to hear. They will, here's the key, they will reject the truth and chase after myths. You know, for the fact that God's word is prophetic, what that means is what it says comes true. This isn't just maybe. This is going to come true, so count on it. Count on the fact that deception is rampant here. And deception will be the enemy's major tool to destroy the church. The major tool to destroy you and destroy me. We're not exempt from deception. Just so you know, we are not exempt from it. So therefore, we have to be very careful of what we allow into our minds. We have to be very careful about what we study and what we believe. You know, I was talking to a a gentleman this week, and uh, he just happens to be um, a life coach. Um, I just met him. And we were having some conversations, and and he, he we began in the conversation. We had a good, good a good court discourse, and and uh, he started to ask me. He said, "Well, I told him I was a pastor, and he says, well, how's your church doing?'" I said, "Well, we're doing okay," and he kind of let on a little bit more, and he said, "Well, how are you growing your church? What's your strategy? How do you grow your church?" Boy, that got me thinking a little bit, because how do we grow a church. Um, and it, it started me to evaluate. It, it started to, I started to evaluate and, and think about the messages that I preach. Are my messages the types of messages that grow a church? And when I looked at it, I don't think my messages are the easiest ones to listen to. Maybe because I'm not the best speaker. I get that too. But I think the content sometimes of the messages that I speak are very truth-oriented. And they're, they're not the ones that tickle the ears of those that want to come in. And so I look at it and I said, well, I'm really reflective here. Should I change my message? Should I change the content? Should I sty- change the style of, of my ministry? If I preached more messages that spoke about how good we are and how positive life is and all those things, will that grow the church? So I started to think about that. So let me ask you a couple questions. Does preaching truth help or hurt the growth of a local church? Where does truth fall into the priorities of Bible teaching? What do you think? I mean, should I change? Should, should I purposely change the tone of messages so that it is more accepting to public opinion? 
you can have your opinion on that, and I'd love to hear your opinion sometime. Come share it with me. But can I give you my opinion? <laughs> I mean, I take pretty seriously here what I just read that Paul wrote to Timothy. Paul's advice to Timothy was, preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. That's my prayer, is that the teaching is good. And if it has to be good, it must be truthful. Then he goes on to say, because I see the time is at hand, and it's coming quicker and quicker, he says in verse 3, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itchy ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. So by definition here, I believe that's what Peter is talking about when he talks about a false teacher. A false teacher is one that will teach and preach what people want to hear to tickle their fancy. It may just have enough truth in it to get you in the door, but it won't be so truthful that it'll hurt you when you go out, <laughs> that you'll feel better when you leave. And, and I, yeah, I want people to feel good. I'm not out to make people feel bad. Not at all. But I think we have to recognize that the tool of the enemy, it will be that it will take all truth out and will make it in just a way that it tickles our, our, our ears. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is teaching here, and he's giving the signs of what the end times are going to be like. The, the disciples are asking in this, the 24th chapter of Matthew of what are the end times going to be like, and this is what Jesus says. Beginning at verses 4 and 5, Matthew 24, 4 and 5, Jesus told them, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. There's that word many again. Jesus is giving the, giving the warning prophetically that in the end times there will be false teachers coming, false messiahs coming, and they will deceive many. And when Jesus gives us an instruction by saying don't be misled, recognize that's a choice that we have. We can choose to be misled or we can choose not to be misled. So our advice here, my advice, is that we would take the choice not to be misled by deceitful teaching. You see, Satan is very cunning. And he can do things even supernatural. He can duplicate miracles, can he? And he can replicate some of the good things of God to maybe not make them and keep them good, but he'll twist them to further his own agenda. And his, his own agenda is lying and deception. That's all he can do is lie. And so if Satan can be deceptive in any way, he will be. And so Jesus gives the warning. In fact, in fact, Jesus was so concerned that people would be misled in the end days, he says it two more times in that same chapter of Matthew 24. Go down to verses 11 through 12 of that same chapter of Matthew chapter 24. And Jesus said, And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many, there's that word again, the love of many will grow cold. Jesus is very concerned that in the end times, deception is going to be so intense and so rampant that many will lose their love for him. 
Go down to verse 24 and 25 of that same chapter. Jesus says, For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. And then he says, I have already warned you about this ahead of time. See, it's a prophetic warning that the days that we're living in, we are in the end times. I'm convinced of that, but when I look around at all history and all the things that are going around politically around this world and how that matches up with God's prophecies, that we are living in the end times. My, my Bible commentary gives this understanding about this passage. It says, as the last days draw to a close, false teachers and preachers will be very common They gain influence in the church by claiming to have new revelations and solutions to serious problems. Yet they will deny the Bible as to be the answer to these questions. Much of Christianity will be in a spiritually rebellious and unfaithful condition. Those who are totally committed to living by the truth and standards of God's word will be in the minority. And that's what we're seeing today more and more. How does this happen? How do they sneak in? See, many who claim to be loyal Christians will accept this new revelation, the, the new word, the, the easier word. And they will, even if it conflicts with the Bible, because it's easier then to live up to a standard that is reduced than what the Bible holds as a standard. It, see, I mean... It, I look at it from myself and maybe even from yourself as well as you look at it. When you see the standards of God's holiness, it takes work on our part to achieve the holiness standards. And it's not doing away with God's grace. It is part of God's grace because God says, I'll give you grace that you can do all things. And part of all those things are coming up to God's standards of holiness. Because without holiness, none of us will see God because that's where God's at. But the new revelations that are being taught now are teaching us how we can reduce the standards of holiness that we can easier for us to live by. And people will find those to be more, um, more acceptable. And that's a form of deception. And that's where the enemy will take us in that world of let's just lower the standards of God's holiness a little bit. You can still be good. <laughs> you can still go to church. In fact, I encourage you to go to church. Go in church and be that good church person. But just don't live by the standards of holiness. And he wins. He wins. That will lead to a lot of contention and a lot of arguments in the church. Turn, to your, turn your Bible again to 1 Timothy. Let's see what Paul has to say again to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. He says, now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, which is where we're at right now, again, prophetically, the Holy Spirit will tell us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teaching that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars, and their consciences are dead. You see, think about the influence that a mega pastor would have when he falls. And the fall doesn't have to be a drastic fall. It, it can be just maybe just a twisting of the truth. A man that has much influence, if he doesn't speak the truth and the whole counsel of God's word, how subtly he can twist the direction of the church into something that is more about him or more about whatever it takes to draw the crowds, whatever it takes to bring keep the money coming in, than it is truly about the truth of God's word and how quickly that can distort things or 
sometimes they even have a moral failure and fall. I mean, how, how can the enemy use that to destroy the kingdom of God? So the fallen pastor or the fallen leader, even though I don't believe he started off that way, I believe that probably most pastors that have fallen either morally or gotten off track somehow didn't start off to, to want to be that way. But if we're not careful, we can easily just find ourselves slipping into that issue of just of wanting to please people and not pleasing God. Where we can fear the, the comments of people more than we fear the judgment of God. Because I think that is, that's, the, that's the beginning of, of, of failure. It's the beginning of when we lose our, our fear is when we lose our track, being faithful to God. It happens slowly. One little compromise at a, at a time. One here and one there and then one over there. And before long, the power of the slippery slope sets in. Now, that reminds me of a little story. When I was in, at Michigan Tech and Chris and I first got married, I know how slippery slopes can be. <laughs> we lived up there and we had lots of snow the first year we were there, 350 inches of snow or so that first year at Michigan Tech in 1981. And uh, we went to a church, Assemblies of God Church there, and like most of the buildings there, they're old. <laughs> and they have very steep roofs. And they're on big hills, and there's a lot of distances from the roofs to the, to the, <laughs> to the ground. So we were in this church, and the snow was starting to pile up on the roof and getting, in, getting down in the valleys, and it was starting to so heavy on the roof that it was starting to, the doors weren't opening well. So the pastor said, I need some volunteers to go up and, and shovel the roof of the church. And since I was young and dumb, I volunteered. And I am not good on heights to begin with. But it was so steep that what we did is we had, we worked in pairs. And we tied a rope around our waist. And one stood on, one was the holder of the other guy while the other guy was shoveling. And he was on that side of the peak. And the other guy was on the other side of the peak doing the shoveling in case he started to slip down the slope that the guy would stop him. And so we took turns because we had to go on both sides. And so I'm shoveling now my side of the peak, and I've got a guy over there holding me, and I'm trusting him that, that he's heavier than I am, <laughs> that he's my anchor. And um, so I'm doing the shoveling and, and pushing it down and watching it go. And there's, I mean, there were probably 30, 40-foot drops from the, from the, to the ground. And I'm nervous, and uh, I shoveled this. I leaned into this one. It got a little bunch of snow going, and I lost my footing, and I'm going with the snow. And now I'm on my slide down, and I had nothing I could do. I mean, on a slippery slope, once it starts to go, you're gone. And it wasn't until I felt the tug of the guy, that my, my, the tightness of the rope came, where he stopped me about 10 feet down the slide. And I was ready to get off the roof at that time. <laughs> but, we, but we finished, and we got it done. But I just, I, I can attest to a slippery slope. And that's the way our, our moral life can be, too. Because once you start to slide, how do you get the footing to stop? And that's what happens spiritually. Once the enemy gets us slipping down that slippery slope of compromise, when do we know and how, more importantly, how do we stop it? So the key is don't lose your footing. Don't lose your footing. And so that's the key to this. And that's what, that's what um, the Bible is for. If we keep ourselves committed to the Bible, and I think that, that people fall typically when they lose their love for God's word. When you lose your love for prayer, you start slipping down that slope. 
Second Thessalonians, Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica, and he says this in verse chapter 2, verse 10. The enemy will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. So the fall starts, the slippery slope starts when you lose your love of God's word. If you're not in God's word, if you're losing your desire to pray, that's a warning. It's a warning that you're on the slope that can get slippery real fast. So don't lose your love for God's word because once the slide begins, you know how hard it is to get back into the habit. Many in the church will not tolerate the truth if it challenges, if it challenges or contradicts their own behaviors and lifestyles. That's what's happening. And as a result, the distorted message that we find will um, gain little resistance in many churches because once we're slipping and sliding down the, down the slope, <laughs> there's no resistance anymore. And the false lies and the false teaching will have more of an effect on us. How did they get into the church in the first place? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 13. This is what Paul describes them as. He says, these people are false apostles. They are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. But I'm not surprised, he says, because even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. You see, Satan understands that the best way to get into a church is to look like a church. The best way to get involved in someone's life is to look like them, to be like them, just enough that they can be that, that wolf in sheep's clothing. He puts the disguise on that he's a good guy, and he gets into the church, and he gets into life, and he has some influence, gains influence and respect, and that's how he then turns into the evil. The great deceiver, Satan, uses evil people as his agents, transforming them into false apostles, deceitful workers, and leading, him, leading them into a leadership positions in churches where they can gain influence in people's lives. They appear to accomplish great things for God. They can preach appealing messages and look really, really good from the outside. However, in reality, they reject the truth of God's word and his godliness and deny its power thereof. Second Timothy chapter 3. Do you want to talk about where we're at today? This is prophetically speaking back in the day of where we're at today. Second Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 1. He says, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days, again, prophetically, when the last days, there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. <laughs> Stay away from people like that. See, we are to discern those in the church that claim to be godly but yet reject the power thereof. We're to be careful. Now, for time's sake, 
I would ask you to go home and read all of chapter 2 of Peter. I'm not going to go through the whole chapter today or even later because the, the rest of that chapter, it just talks about the demise and what God is going to do with false teachers. God, it, God hates it. He detests false t- teachers, and he will destroy them. So go home and read the great detail that Peter goes into and how God will deal with those that are false, deceiving those in the church. It's powerful. You need to read it. But I want to end with some good news today because I've given a pretty dark picture of where we're at. But what Peter also says is that, he, that, that God promises that God knows how to keep those who are righteous in the day of darkness. God has a way. He knows how to do this. And, and I want you to, let's go back to our text. Go back to Peter chapter 2. Go back to Peter chapter 2. This is the verse where I want to end on today. For God did not spare, starting at verse 4, for God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness where they were being held until the day of judgment. And God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgments. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Later, verse 6, Later, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ashes. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Verse 8, Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. This is the key. Verse 9 says, So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from trials even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. So today, recognize where we're at. Jackie, you can come. Recognize where we're at. Recognize the day that we're living in is, is, is relentlessly deceptive. And it's evil and it's dark. But be encouraged that even in those days, God knows your name. And he knows my name. And he knows where we're at. He knows your address. And he hears your prayers. And he hears your, your, your intercession that we talked about earlier today. And he knows how to rescue the godly, even amongst the ungodly, those that will be kept for the darkest days of destruction. God can protect those that are godly. That's you and I today. So church, we need to be encouraged. We need to be wise, but we need to be encouraged. Revelations chapter 3, verses 8 through 11 John the Revelator says this to the Church of Philadelphia. He says, I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Here's the key. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. Hear me. Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. 
Amen. There is, there is promise here, guys. In the days of testing that we're in, we have a promise that God knows how to protect us. Jesus is coming, and he's coming soon. That's why we need to be ready. That's why we need to be that bride that is keeping ourselves pure and holy until the day that the, bride, the father says, son, go get your bride. That's what we talk about. That's what this video tonight's about. Behold, the wrath, before the wrath, when the Father says, Son, go get your bride, that's us. And our job is to keep ourselves pure and undefiled from this evil, of this deception of the world today, the deception of this world. It's great hope, great promise. Be encouraged. Persevere to the end and don't give up. But love the Word of God. Can I just say that? Love the Word of God. Love your prayer time. Protect your own personal devotions. Protect the time that you go before the Lord, just you and by yourself alone, go into your prayer closet. Don't forgo that. Keep that as an important part of your life. And if it's not, create it. Start it today. That is so important to protecting us from deception. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name today. And Lord, we are living in a time that is um, unequal as far as the enemy's attacks. We know that he is very angry. We know the enemy is all about destruction. And he does that through the subtleness of deception. So I pray that you would guard our hearts and our minds today. But I pray, Father, that you would give us a love for your word. And I pray that we would recognize what our responsibilities are in this, that we have to be responsible for our own future. This is a cooperative effort. You give us the grace, but your grace is sufficient so that it will lead us on into more righteousness and more holiness. So I pray, I pray protection over our families today. I pray protection over this church today. And for all those that, that profess to love you, I pray that you protect them and guard them and, and just put your hedge of, of love about them and to give them a hunger for more of you and a more of you all the time that we would never, ever let that wane. Lord, I just need you. I need you. This church needs you more than ever today. And we just love you and we thank you promising to protect us in Jesus name in Jesus name amen Amen. let's sing the song that Tom and Jack are playing and, and just worship the Lord just let him know how much you love him in Jesus name today stand with me if you would
is just really impressing in my heart today that as you walk out the door, the enemy is going to come to you and say, this isn't necessary. Just live your life the way you want to live your life. The pastor is only 52% of people don't believe they're pastors. <laughs> I, I, the Lord is really pressing in my heart here today to make sure that you know the urgency of the hour and to know that really this is important and that you just cannot, you cannot forego this teaching. This is solid Bible teaching that we must have the love of God's Word in our life. And if you're not a reader of the Bible, you must start reading the Bible. I can't stress that enough. You have to do it. I can't do it for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. You're going to stand before God someday, and He's going to hold you accountable. If you're listening here or listening there online, you're going to be accountable. This is God's love calling out to you say that, folks, I'm coming soon, and I want you to be that remnant. I want you to be part of that many or that few that are really there because many are waxing love cold. Many, many are leaving the faith. Directly or indirectly, they're leaving the faith because they're not taking words like this serious. My prayer is that we take it serious today. We do our part. Father, I just pray your blessing on your people today that give us a hunger. Give us a supernatural hunger for the word. Give us a supernatural desire to pray that we would know how important it is that we communicate to you on a daily basis, on a regular basis, throughout the day, that we just stay in an attitude of prayer. God, I pray that the urgency would be so impressed on all of our hearts today that we would leave here, Father, with a hunger for you like we've never had before. Unprecedented hunger for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. 
In Jesus' name, be blessed today. Be blessed. Amen. The Lord loves us.